and welcome to another episode of For What It's Worth. I'm Evan Lucas, InvestMart's Chief Market Strategist. Joining me in the hot seat this week is founder of Crikey, shareholder activist, and the maker of the main report, Stephen Main. Stephen, welcome to the program. It's um, obviously been a very interesting fortnight, particularly for you know stuff that we do look at. I know particularly in your world being a shareholder activist, somebody that's obviously been in the media as well. The federal election has... As they let's use their word, it's caught people by surprise. It certainly caught a lot of markets by surprise. You know, there is now the illusion that maybe, and I use that word deliberately, that the housing market has got a floor underneath it with the fact that we saw over the weekend that clearance rates jumped up. Now, I actually take that with a huge pinch of salt, in fact, probably a handful of salt. Then you had someone like Matt Common come out and say that, you know, last week was actually their highest level of applications for loans in six months. Now, I actually put that down to the fact that the last time, if you go back to when he's talking about, which is October 2018, was under the same scenario where we did have a speculation that rate cuts could be on on the cards, that there was obviously tight credit issues, blah, 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 people were trying to get in front of it. Your first, so the question is, is this a federal election change? Is it a momentum change, or is it just something else that's come about with the fact that the election has certainly caused something, but it's not actually fixing the underlying structural thing? Look, I think it is a big moment, uh, the election. I think even the house price weakness before the election, I think you can partly put down to the uncertainty and the fears of the taxes and things like that. So I think investors were genuinely worried. And the the, the million people being hit by the franking, I think that that spooked people a lot of business put put investment on hold, so I'm, I'm actually quite a believer in 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 the, the genuineness of the relief rally. That uh, that the fears of what Labor could do to investors and the economy uh, was was ingrained and getting worse as the size of their ambition grew and their rhetoric grew, and mm-hmm. people thought about heck, what is this going to mean? Yeah. So I think it really was uh, in a significant relief. I was surprised at the size of the bank rally in particular, but. Uh, I do think it will put a floor under house prices. I thought Matt Common's comments about the 10% up, up, uptick and the, and the auctions result was telling that people had been sitting on their hands. They were worried and they're saying, thank God for that. From yep. an investor point of view, we can actually now go out and spend and borrow. And, and I think everyone's now onto the franking credits, call it a rort or not, everyone's now onto it. Yep. I mean, you know, if interest rates are going to keep crashing, then the best thing you can do is buy stocks that pay fully franked uh, dividends. So I think they're going to see that blow out as more and more people say, well, that's obviously the place to be. I want to pick you up on that because that's actually a really interesting point. As as we speak, and, and again, you know, this will probably catch me up on time as people listen to this over the period, but we are now picking up on that exact point, right? So we're facing next week on Tuesday a basically certain rate cut. Let, let's be honest. That's what the market's saying. If you then look at what's going on this week, so this is obviously the, the week that started on the 27th of May, we've actually seen the Aussie 10-year bond go below the cash rate. So it's now at 1.49 as I speak. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. So that I think is the interesting question, right? I think for the first time in our history, we could be staring down the barrel of particularly very simple money market products, term deposits, debentures, blah, 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 facing a crisis they haven't had. It's very sticky money. It's money that mums and dads love. It is, adverted commas, safe as houses because we still have a remnants from the Rudd government's, you know, obviously guarantee overlay for up to a quarter of a million bucks. But if you're an investor, and you definitely are, a one handle on your term deposit, does that finally force you to go and do exactly what you just said and go and find franking credits and yield 
in equities to offset the fact that you're now only getting just on inflation at best probably post next Tuesday and definitely post August? Well, I think I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, if you could put interest rates to historic lows, mm-hmm. um, it's hopeless, It's terrible for retirees. And yeah. I mean, I think Elmer Funky Cooper wrote a really interesting article this week, you know, the five reasons why they shouldn't cut interest rates. And that was one of them, the, um, the, the lack of income for, for retirees. So I think you will see that switching out of cash and particularly with this sort of unbelievable education campaign about the benefit of ranking credits that we've had. Never, it's been a hidden secret basically. Yeah. And now it's widely known. So you sit there and you go, well, I can get 6% fully franked off a big four bank uh, or I can stick my money in the bank that, with that same bank and get what, you know, one and a half or 2%. I think that you're going to see more and more people doing it. I mean, I must admit, I've just come off the board of the Shareholders Association and I was saying to them, we're not the Australian Cash Management Trust Association. <laughs> Why aren't we investing in shares? Yeah. We're the Shareholders Association. So, you know, I, I think you'll see more and more people um, doing that. And that worries me to a degree because we're already the greatest shareholding own, uh, share-owning nation in the world, uh, 7 million Australians owning shares. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Is it really the role of the central bankers to just prop up the housing market and the the, the equity markets? They seem to be serial stimulators, yep. these central bankers globally. And I, so I'm against what they're going to do in this rate I'm, cut. I'm, I'm, I'm with dead you. against it. I yeah, just think I'm it's, with it's reckless. And what does it leave in the tank once yeah. you've done that? Yeah, and I'm a little bit different. I mean, I, I, I think that's – and I'm going to pick you up a bit further on that because obviously it brings to the other side of the equation, which is fiscal – and I know that you've been speaking to the Victorian um, Treasurer, and I'll come to you about that in a minute. But what I want to pick up a little bit further before we go off this, around the housing, around banking, around TD switching into equities, my question that I have around this is something that we may not have actually ever seen, and they call it the, the banks call it their triangle, the shareholder, the term deposit holder, and the mortgage holder. They call it their triangle, and it is – Adverted commas. I mean, the person I used to listen to a lot about this was Mike Smith. Now, I don't think Mike Smith was necessarily the, the greatest person to be talking to because his decisions around Asia clearly have hurt ANZ. But they always try to sort of talk around the idea of balancing that. So making sure the mortgage holder could actually obviously reservice their loan and get the return that they wanted from a bank perspective. Obviously, the shareholder needs to be very much considered in there considering that you know banks do have a huge amount of shareholders that have a very, very big part of their their overall balance sheet. But the TD holder is the one that's never really been talked about. And we have a scenario now where TDs, what the other thing I think sometimes gets lost in this debate, it's up in, you know, let's again, look at something like CBA, almost two thirds of their funding costs to help the mortgage holder comes from term deposits. And they got the biggest market share. Correct, by a long, long way. Mm. So if all of a sudden, even if it dropped by 5%, that therefore could actually completely offset the 25 basis points we're going to get next Tuesday because banks are going to have to still go to the wholesale market. Now, I know and understand right now the wholesale market is falling very, very quickly and I understand that's the argument back at me. But if you spread it over a longer period of time, where all of a sudden that money goes, goes into into equities, which I actually think is the correct call, but it goes into that, you've all of a sudden got a scenario where that triangle still gets disrupted because net interest margins are going to get hit the mortgage holder may not actually get the handed through from the cash rate anyway because the banks can't afford to do mm. it. Adverted commas, um, I actually think they can. That's the next question is that I think we're facing something we haven't actually ever seen in this country where that triangle gets disrupted. Thoughts on that? 
Well, I think it's 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 a real it's a real issue because it's not rational to have so much of your money tied up in in term Cash. deposits. Yep. I just think it's not rational. And at the end of the day, Australia is unique in the world where we basically fund a very large current account deficit through big four banks borrowing offshore in the wholesale markets. Hmm. Um, and there's no other country in the world where four of the top six stocks are banks, and they're making forty billion a year pre-tax and I, it's just, I still find it amazing that they can borrow cheap offshore give term deposit holders not much and rely on the fact that we've got the most indebted households in the world and they're basically giant building societies as Don Argus used to call them um, and they just make 40 billion pre-tax and then you've got 7 million Australians piling into that um, you know direct and indirect owning these 400 billion dollars worth of um of big bank shares, mm-hmm. um, which then pay the fully frank dividends, which then you know, give a big chunk of the government's uh, company tax revenue and a huge part of the franking credits play. So no other country in the world are big four banks so pivotal to the wealth and the operation of the stock market and you know the housing market and everything else. And um, I don't know. I just worried when I saw them, those share prices spiking up like that after the election. I thought, oh, don't we need to reduce the importance of our banks in the overall economy, haven't they taken over too much of, of the Australian economy? Don't we need more tech stocks and mining stocks? And so, um, yeah, but it's it's a it's a huge play. They are definitely too big to fail. They are absolutely uh, that's the question pivotal. Um, and people do trust them. And I think you know, the the TDs, you know, people just they just can't bring themselves to put their money somewhere else for yep. some reason. This this trust in the big four banks is is just right in the Australian psyche. It is interesting. I'll pick you up on that after the break because I really want to pick up on the other side of the equation. The InvestSmart Australian Ethical Share Fund initial offer closes this Friday the 31st of May. A portfolio focused on high-quality companies that will grow into tomorrow's leaders, eliminating companies that have a negative impact on the environment and our society. Visit investsmart.com.au to find out more. So, Stephen, before the break, we're having a chat, obviously, clearly about monetary policy, about the banks and, and how they play into it. I want to sort of move to the other side. I said before the break, you obviously went and saw the Victorian treasurer and had a listen to his story, particularly around his adverted commas, $1 billion surplus that he somehow managed to deliver. Can I ask a question? Because he, again, alluded to the fact that part of his issue at the moment that he's facing is the housing. So we've been talking about this quite quite significantly. What did you take from his speech? Because I found it quite interesting. Well, it just goes to show how sort of narrow the revenue bases of the states are and how absolutely reliant they are on on property. And Tim Pallas was saying that, that you know, it'd been the biggest crash ever or biggest reduction ever with a 10% drop in price and a 15% drop in volume. And he missed his stamp duty forecast by a billion. Yeah. And I actually got up to him yesterday and said, but hang on, but your, your land tax revenue rose by 600 million more than what you were expecting. Yeah. So, and he'd actually just pushed through a really big increase in valuations on land tax. So all those property holders out there, the big property trusts, you are, gonna, you are copying it yeah. from, uh, from desperate governments. So I, I just, it just for me, it said how fragile the states are because they've got narrow revenue bases and they have to do all the heavy lifting. You know, the infrastructure spending, you know, 15, 16 billion on one project in mm. Melbourne, one toll road, the North East Link. So Australia's got the most lopsided federation in the world where the feds have all the cash and don't do much of the work. Yep. And the states do most of the heavy lifting on health and education and transport and infrastructure in the capital cities and just don't have the revenue bases. So they are fragile. They absolutely are relying on confidence, property turnover. But you look at the detail of the budget and they are – 
Victorians, they are getting desperate. I mean, they are raiding their monopoly insurance situations. They're taking a, you know, $2 billion out of the Transport Accident Commission, which is the majority, which is the monopoly third-party accident insurer. Now, that money is owned by the motorists. Yeah. They have paid the premiums. Yep. They should be getting lower premiums, but the government's gone, nope, Actually. monopoly rent, we'll take that out. And they've even done the same thing with, um, with the workers' compensation. So everyone who pays their work cover and insurance premium um, the government's taking half a billion out of that as well in Victoria where we've got a government monopoly. So the innovations they're having to do to raise money because the property market has slowed down is very interesting. And I just think, you know, I think the Victorians and the other states, I mean, we're already seeing huge pressure in the Northern Territory budget, huge pressure in the Tasmanian budget. South Australian budget's already been very fragile. So poor financials of state governments, second-tier governments, with with surging debt. I mean, Victorian debt's going to hit $53 billion, mm. uh, by 2022-23. Yep. Remember when it was it was $32 billion under Joan Kerner and, and when Jeff Kennett came in and that was a crisis yep. and we had double downgrades? Well, we've now sold everything off. $45 billion worth of assets have been sold. And we're back Not there. much left to sell and the debt's going to hit $50 billion. That's the question. I think that's the, the beautiful part. So right now... The argument, surely, from what we just had before around the fact that monetary policy is basically this great prop-up stimulator has clearly, now not just in Australia, the best example is obviously what happened in the States, the Bernanke put, where we can argue about and what happened with the Federal Reserve, putting rates to basically zero and then buying, being constantly in the market over there, buying up either mortgage-backed securities or corporate debt at 80 billion bucks a month at the top. It's just a staggering thought process. Yet the other side of the equation is that that also meant that rates globally and also here in Australia are quite low. Governments could have the argument. I mean, again, on the electoral side, you can argue a different story, but governments have an argument to make that they could probably actually go out and borrow and provide and make projects like you've just alluded to. Infrastructure projects clearly are a very simple stimulus measure that could be done very, very easily. You could even then conjoin it with, and this is a controversial thing, I get really pulled up on this, you could join an infrastructure project with climate change. And the reason I say that is that right now, the ability to go and borrow and actually develop you know, energy projects particularly renewable energy projects at some of the cheapest rates you can ever do is there. Creates jobs immediately, starts to actually look. Now, I know indirect, you know, direct action programming isn't the best way to obviously answer the whole idea. But right now, why is fiscal policy continuing to run down the idea that we're in the 90s, not in the, you know, basically almost basically in the 20s, where we now need to see governments actually doing what they should be doing, which is to be actually a promoter of growth on a constant basis? Well, I mean, the Libs are traditionally that sort of the small spend, small government, you know. So Jeff Kennett didn't spend much on infrastructure. The Howard years, they didn't spend much on infrastructure. Tony Abbott didn't believe in investing in rail at all. Mm. That is actually the big difference with Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg is they have pledged a record federal government infrastructure program. They have. Um, and so they are saying, they are saying that, that, you know, we need congestion busting and we do agree with getting the, getting the economy going. But that's also within the context of a balanced budget. You know, so they have got back to surplus. The Victorians yesterday announcing a, a billion-dollar surplus, that's only at the operating level. That's mm. ignoring the capital side. Yeah. Uh, whereas the feds actually include everything before they say it's a surplus. So, you know, this accounting by the states, you know, basically ignoring ca- capital spending, it's just it's, it's quite, quite a rort. But, look, at the end of the day, 
the feds have withdrawn a lot of fiscal stimulus through the Turnbull uh, Abbott Morrison years, you know, from a $45, $50 billion surplus down to zero. So that actually probably has contributed to part of this sort of economic weakness at the moment. You're no longer getting tens of billions of stimulus, deficit-funded, you know, debt-funded stimulus coming from the feds. So, you know, but at least you know, I think it's a good thing they're going to they're crank up the, the investment, uh, the infrastructure spending. Much of it is through the states. Um, but, you know, whether we need the Reserve Bank to then go bang with the stimulus hose on top of that as well, you know, as I said earlier, I just I'm nervous about it. And I think it gets a bit lazy. For, you know, the federal government should be doing a whole bunch of reforms. But hang on, the attitude seems to be sit back and the RBA will do the hard work for us. Mm-hmm. They'll just do it. It'll cut. And um, this will stimulate the economy and we don't have to do, you know, microeconomic reform, tax reform, industrial relations, federal state reforms, health, education, climate. You know, we can have not much of an agenda and a rate cut will get the job done. Nah, not very inspiring. Correct. Policy and I don't reckon a solid rate cut is going to be enough. You're probably going to see two. They always work in pairs. Um, I think we spoke about this before and I say this quite a lot. The monetary policy, in my view, is, is a sledgehammer to do fine art. Uh, and you've got a basically in this country, a solitary lever. We don't have the this economic size that a US has or a European Union has or a Bank of Japan has where they can actually print money and do what they need to do or, you know, let's not even go there, but, you know, this theory around modern monetary policy, that in Australia would kill our country. It could possibly work in the States, but it would kill this country. So to even talk about it in the same is just not possible. But... Again, the, the whole point around why we're, we're talking around this is it's not going to fix the problem. Um, and, I, and I think that's sort of there. I, I think we've talked about that enough. Let's, let's sort of move a little bit more into some spaces that I know that you love talking around. Um, so the one to obviously look at this week is something that we talk about quite interesting is, is Woolworths. Um, the off-market buyback, that 1.7 buyback, massively oversubscribed. There's no surprise to that. It gets back to your, you know, one of your pet things being franking credits. Um why don't you sort of answer that question first because then I've got another point to talk to you about about franking credits going forward. Yeah, look, I think uh, the Institute of Public Accountants a few years ago put out a statement saying that, that off-market buybacks were a rort um, because they were you know, allowing <clears throat> people to maximise their franking credits. So I think that just looking at the Woolworths announcement where they had $11 billion of applications from their shareholders in, for, in, 1.7. For, for $1.7 million. So they had to scale it back by... By 85%, people only got 15% of what they asked for on average. I mean, and Woolworths said, we'll give every small shareholder the basic 5000 bucks, and then it's an 85% scale back. Now, so these are people offering to, to buy back shares at a 14% discount. So this is not high taxpayers. This is not foreign investors. This is the SMSF army. This is the low-tax, no-tax army mm. who, when they get a payment – which is incredibly, and I still don't know, I still struggle to understand how they allow this, that, that of the buyback price of $28.94, $24.15 is deemed to be the dividend component. <laughs> so the franking credits that attract to that are massive and therefore a lot of people, that, these people are going to get many, many tens of millions of cash out of the federal government. So this $6 billion figure that we talk about, up from $500 million, I think it's going to grow more because of the education and it's because of buybacks like this, Woolworths 1.7, Rio Tinto did one last year, 2.8 billion. This is, you know, I think it's sharp practice because it's not treating all shareholders equally and it's maximising those those franking um, cash payouts. And the fact that it was so popular at 11 billion applications to 
sell your shares at a 14% discount. Mm-hmm. I think it just shows how it is a unique system in the world and, and I don't know if that's going to last. So the question comes from that. The banks, they're sitting on a heck of a lot of franking credits. And we haven't seen them do a lot of uh, selective buybacks. I mean, Caltex just did one for $260 million. Uh, Metcash did one. So I think maybe people will take the view that if they get too sharp, either they get into, sell, they get into off-market buybacks, people will say this is a rort yep. and this has got to stop. So I think maybe the banks are sitting there saying, oh, we better, be, we better be careful. But, I mean, I think the highlight of how important franking credits are came a few years ago when that APRA cranked up the big four banks' capital requirements. And in the one year, I think it was 2015, they raised $20 billion and they paid out $20 billion. So there's this great big merry-go-round where they said, thank you, shareholders, give us $20 billion in capital raisings because APRA wants us to have more capital. And then, oh, we'll, but we'll keep the dividends going because we've got to get these franking credits out and we've got to get the cash refunds going back to the shares. Wouldn't you normally just say, take a holiday from your dividend for a year? Say, yeah. we need to raise some money so we're not going to pay dividend. But it just goes to show how we are so addicted to franked dividends. Yes. And everyone loves it. I mean, the investment bankers love it because every time there's a takeover, the companies have got, you know, they haven't got spare cash because they're under so much pressure to pay out all their frank dividends. They never leave any wiggle room in the balance sheet. So every takeover... Capital raising, 2% fee for the investment banks, It's so they love it too. You used a word before that I loved, which is innovation, and that gets back down to exactly what I think you just said, which is my biggest gripe at the moment, particularly over the last two years, our addiction to yield has probably impacted the fact that the ASX has consistently underperformed globally. You argued the point that we don't have info infotech here. We don't have really good uh, telecommunications. We've got some good healthcare, but there's realistically one that dominates and then there's nothing. These are growth companies, growth stocks and growth parts of the market. But we are, because we are so addicted to yield, because- Frank com- yield. Yep. And because CEOs know full well how to basically crave to that shareholder, innovation- t- Dead. Well, that's right. I mean, what's so special about buying a big four bank? Stock? Nothing. You know, I that's mean, right. You'd what's even argue special about buying Woolworths and Telstra. Yeah, you'd even argue about what two, three years ago when all of a sudden you saw BHP and Rio start chasing the yield story. That that to me was just a flashing light. Going, what have we done? Yeah, I, I agree. I I do not think it's healthy. I think we have a a stock market that's inwardly focused service sector oligopoly types that we haven't had the future fund style capital allocation where they've only got 6% in Aussie equities. They are genuinely globally invested. We don't have enough of our SMSFs and our super funds which have ridden the the US tech story because they've been overweight Aussie equities Mm -hmm. and it is very much the franking dividend yield story. So I I think that it wasn't part much of the debate but Chris Baum did say it distorts capital allocation and it means we put too much in the Aussie market and we've got too much of a weighting here. I agree with him. But he was just far too brutal in the way he went about ending it. And I genuinely think that Labor would have won the election without that. I just think it was absolute suicide to, to inflame a million Australians, insult them and say it was a gift. Yeah. Um, that they, word and call the them worst. the top, top end of town yeah, when that, by that definition word. they're not because they're not paying tax because they're not that rich. Yeah. That word was was the issue. Gift it was just obviously hit back with Stephen. I'd love to keep talking. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for coming in, Evan. It's a pleasure. I look forward to speaking again. That's all for this week. If you're interested in finding out more about Investmart, where you'll find all of our previous episodes, as well as Alan Collar's weekend briefing, thoughts from Australia's best financial commentators, as well as our brand new ethical share fund, Innis, head to investmart.com.au. 
Invest Month. Let's make wealth happen.